This is A Voice, a podcast with Dr. Gillian Kays and Jeremy Fisher. This is A Voice. Hello and welcome to This is A Voice Season 7, Episode 2. The podcast where we get vocal about voice. I'm Jeremy Fisher. And I'm Dr. Gillian Kays. And today we're doing Classical versus Musical Theatre, The Revenge. Part two. The Revenge. I didn't agree to that title. I thought it was The Return. (laughs) Uh, We're feeling feisty today. Are we getting vocal about voice already? We are. I think we probably are. So, um, for those of you who listened to the podcast episode last time, uh, Season 7, Episode 1, we're talking about classical versus musical theatre training, specifically. And um, whether classical is better or musical theatre is better or they're both equal or what goes on. There are also questions about whether we should be teaching musical theatre at an early stage for those who want to learn it or whether there are other things we should be teaching. And can I just chip in, Jeremy, and say we had some wonderful engagement last week on the YouTube channel when we did the premiere. That was great. So do watch those if you want to, because you can comment as you go along and tell us whether you agree or disagree. In fact, if you go up on the right in in the YouTube player, it says show chat replay and you'll see everything live as it comes in, which is fun. Okay, so we said that there would be a sort of sub-theme this time, which was going to be style or technique. Can I introduce this? Because I've heard this a lot. I mean, I consider myself a musical theatre specialist for obvious reasons, singing and the actor being one of them, and then our joint book, Successful Singing Auditions, being another. And I've had quite a few conversations with people on social media about differences between musical theatre and classical singing. And there is quite a lot of thought out there that it's the same basics but just the style that's different. Okay. All right. We're going, we're digging straight in. Mm. Right. Um, Okay. If you're a man, if you are um, male identifying identifying Mm -hmm. and you have a testosterone influenced voice, Mm. then it is slightly easier for you to move styles because the basic sound that you're making is a lighter or heavier or less resonant or darker or richer or or whatever version of the sound that you make. If you are female identifying, it gets a little trickier. Yeah, because, I mean, I think what we're saying, this is obviously a generalisation, but with the male identifying, you just need to change shape, resonance shape, and um, for want of a better word, perhaps lighten off a little. Get rid of that chiara oscuro um, sort of uh, timbre setting and you will be able to adjust and sound more like a musical theatre singer. There are other things you need to do as I well. But I, let's I, I, just was say, gonna, I was going to say, I was going to say, there's a lot more oh, to it than change that. Change the legato, change the narrative style, all the rest all, of it. All, all of the above and more. But in terms of... I'm going to use the term use of voice rather than technique. It is probably easier in our experience. Now, what tends to happen with the female identifying as soon as they're singing more contemporary styles, more contemporary musical theatre, there tends to be um, a more extensive use of chest mechanism, uh, mechanism one, and taking it up higher than would be typical in Western lyric singing. So, for example, when I trained as a classical singer and I sang um, mostly leader and early music, I really did not use my chest mechanism above middle C. In fact, 
from the training I had, it was a bit of a no-no anyway. But let's not go there because um, you and I have a lot to say about the usefulness of eliciting mechanism one, don't we, Absolutely. irrespective of genre. Um, but more typically in contemporary musical theatre, a female singer will need to sing up to A4, I would say at least. Oh, in, minimum. Okay, okay. Minimum. At least. I've told you a million times not to exaggerate. Minimum. Um, in their mechanism one. And you hear this right across the board that um, those of us who are working in this genre need to teach our female identifying voices to hand over very neatly between their mechanism one and mechanism two so that they can sound similar enough in situations where similarity is needed. Not all do require it. Okay, let's break this down because this is actually one of the important bits. We are talking the notes between the F above middle C and the F above that. So CF4 and F5. Okay. Now, if you are a classically trained soprano, mezzo or contralto, it is highly unlikely that you are going to take chest voice above that F4 anywhere into that range. You might do it for one note in one phrase if you're a heavyweight mezzo, for instance. Mm. But you're not going to do it. You're you're not going to sit in M1 in that range, F4 to F5. If you are... A contemporary musical theatre singer, you are pretty much expected not just to be able to knock out notes in that range, but to actually sit entire phrases in M1 in those between those notes, mm. F4 to F5. Mm. And the, if you like, the ceiling for musical theatre, uh, female belters or, or chest voice singers or M1, whatever you want to call it, mm. has gone up a fifth in the last 50 years? Yeah, I have noticed that because, you know, when I was first working with people in the 1980s when Les Miserables came out, mm. um, the women were coming back from their auditions saying they wanted me to sing in chest up to the sea above middle C, mm -hmm. which, by the way, they did, and that's what they're saying. Can you do it in chest, dear? Mm -hmm. And uh, those friends of mine who came from a more classical background, who were stage performers, had done a lot of opera, they couldn't do it. And they'd come back and say, but that's going to wreck my voice. And we had to learn, us teachers, how to elicit that behaviour. And then later on, you know, that ceiling, I agree with you, Jeremy, it's tended to go up, although I think that our way of managing it has changed and the way we manage the resonance shapes has changed. I think there are more choices now than there used to be. Mm. People are doing mm. some extraordinary mixes which are either M1-based or M2-based and they can often sound very similar. Um, but that's all right. The important thing, if you like, is in terms of sheer sound, the female voice has to go into that range and sit there in an M1 or a chest voice or whatever you want to call it. It's an M1 vibration with whatever resonance spaces you want above it. Oh, and... If there's anybody listening who isn't sure what we're talking about, we do have a podcast specifically on this where we do demonstrations. We do. Um, maybe put it in the show notes. I will do. Now, I want to talk about my research. Is that all right? Before you do. Before you do, because there's, no, there's, there's, there's a lot of really great stuff in what Julianne's going to say. Okay. I just want to finish the thought, which is mm. if you're talking sheer sound, then there are a multitude of sounds that need to be created in musical theatre because 
as an actor, you need to be um, employable, basically. And mm. so as a, a musical theatre actor, singer, singer, actor, dancer, triple threat, you need to be able to move from Phantom of the Opera to Rent to Titanic to uh, Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder to Come From Away. And they're all in different styles. Mm. And therefore, you need to have a voice that is so flexible, because not only do you need to be able to sing in all of those styles, but you need to be able to sing in those styles eight shows a week for a year. Yeah. Do you know oh, what? and by the way, rehearse another show while you're performing. Okay, good. You give me a lovely in to talk about my PhD. Yeah. Um, I put a phrase in my PhD uh, when I was in the discussion section saying, musical theatre singers do not have the luxury of Fach. I like a good fach. Absolutely. <laughs> For those of you who have not come across that word, F-A-C-H, it basically means pigeonhole. It's mm. a German word for pigeonhole. Mm. And in the classical world, and slightly less so now, but, you know, up to 15 years ago, the word fach basically denoted the type of music that you were going to sing, the type of role that you were going to sing. So it wasn't just your voice category. Nope. In musical theatre, we don't have that luxury. Nope. We do talk about category of voice, how relevant it is um, in relation to the, you know, the historical Western lyric system is another matter. But what will happen is that the performers are much more cast on their dramatic type. Yep. And I would not be surprised if we talked about this once before. So you can have a soprano-type instrument being cast because of their look and their energy to sing Madame Tenardier. Yeah, which is not a soprano part. And then having to learn how to navigate that in their voice. And this is what we mean by versatility. Yeah. And actually, it is a challenge in musical theatre because you can – as a leading um, person, be singing six to eight times a week. Oh, yeah. And you could be doing four shows back to back on a Saturday and a Sunday. Yep. And if you haven't found the comfortable way of doing that with your voice, you can end up in trouble. Um, okay, your PhD research. My PhD. And you can read about this particular project in the Journal of Voice. I've forgotten the title. We'll have to put it in the show notes. <laughs> um, don't anybody ask me what my PhD was called because I can't remember that either. Excellent. But I was interested in the relationship between different musical genres and female identifying singers. And I looked in particular at Western lyric or classical, musical theatre and CCM or contemporary commercial music. Now, in this particular project, I was making comparisons between musical theatre singers singing more contemporary repertoire and Western lyric singers. And one of the things I did um, in order to have what we call ecological validity was that I asked each singer to sing something from her normal repertoire. So each of them chose their own song, different songs. And then I asked them to create a scale. I did it with them. Um, based on the kind of the key of the song and the range of the song, so that the scale task was sort of positioned within the context of the song itself. So it was just a straight scale, like a C major scale? Or going up or down. Or in, in whatever key. In whatever key, yeah. in relationship to the range of the song. Yeah. And then I allowed them to choose their phoneme. 
So I didn't say everybody must sing E, everybody must sing R, because, okay, that's great for your variables, but it's going to mask some of the things the singer's doing. So um, what I instructed them to do was to sing the scale in the phoneme that they found best represented the way they used their voice in the song. So the scale had to Nobody's match the song. Nobody's done this before. This is and that um just let's just stop there because that's yep. actually for me that's crucial. As a mm. coach, that is crucial. Mm. You do the scales, you do your exercises in the style or the feel or the sound yeah. or the genre of the song that you are about to sing. Mm-hmm. Scales and exercises do not sit separately from everything else. No. Uh, listen, I can I can have a whole conversation on that one. Mm. Mm. So, um, and then what I did was I sent the tests out to the, you know, the listening tests out to expert listeners and they listened to the songs and the scale separately. Everything was, uh, it was a triple blind. It was very interesting because what happened was that they could identify the musical theatre singers from the scale tasks alone. So they didn't even have to hear the songs. It was just the way that people sang scales. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? Yes. It was fascinating. And I kind of had a little bit of flack about that in some of the feedback um, when the research was published, because well, I'm going to stick my neck out and say some people didn't want to hear that. They didn't want to hear that the expert listeners were able to identify the musical theatre singers by their scale tasks alone. Because for me, what that says is, yes, they were using their voices differently. Yep than the Western lyric singers. Okay, I love that. Off soapbox for now. Oh, no, let's climb back on it. Okay. Right. Um, We're going going back to the thing that we actually started with, which is, Mm. is it the same basics, classical versus musical theatre technique? Is it Mm. the same basics and, and just style differences or not? Right. So the thing about... The thing about when you ask people what classical technique is, or oh, classical technique is marvellous and it does everything for you and it makes the tea. The thing <laughs> when you ask them... You're so bad. ...what is classical technique is they can't answer. It's like, please, will somebody... OK, if there's anybody out there, will you please write in or do a speakpipe, speakpipe.com slash vocal process, and record. You have 90 seconds to tell me what classical technique is. Because everybody is so protective and powerful about it, but nobody's actually told me precisely what it what what it requires. And it's like, oh, well, that's not classical. Well, well, belting is not classical. Well, that's not. Well, that's not. Well, that's mm. not. Well, what is then? Yeah, but we do it too, you know, in well, musical theatre. No, we do. No, we, we do. Don't. No, we don't. No, we don't. Because <laughs> I'm going to say what I think classical technique is. And the interesting thing is it is all geared towards what the outcome that is required is. What do you want to do with the sound? What do you want? What type of sound do you want to make? What type of phrasing do you want to do? What type of diminuendos and you know, get louder, get softer? The whole architecture, the structure of the sound, the music, the it's experience. A, it's a sound aesthetic. It's yeah. it's a sound environmental aesthetic because of the you know the performance situation. Oh, by the way. If you really want me to climb onto a hobby horse, let's talk vibrato. Mm, no, no, Who, no, 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 no. I've got to. No, I've got to say this. Who says that a vibrato of a major third is appropriate in any genre? Please stop doing that. Thank you. Right. Um, so, is, is it the same basics? I mean, you're making sound. Mm. You're using your breath. You're using your resonance shapes. 
um, you're using consonants. Mm-hmm. So that's I, that's all the same in in any type of singing, pretty much at all. So is it just that it's a style difference? And the answer is no. It's a it different isn't. balance. And by the way, I am by no means the only researcher who has looked at this. Hmm. It's very interesting because I think the, the the concept in people's heads who are saying that classical technique is the thing that you should teach and you should start everybody on it and you shouldn't do any mm. classical you shouldn't mm. do any non-classical until they are of age. The thing which is really interesting is the implication of that is that classical technique you learn this classical technique and then you just alter it slightly depending on what what the outcome is, what the music mm. is, what the mm. situation is. And the difficulty for me is, my first question always is, how long does it take you to learn classical technique? And when pinned against the wall, a lot of teachers will say years. And I'm going, why? Why does it take years? Why can I not just teach it to you in a day? And the answer is context. Mm. Because the thing about classical technique in general is that there is a matching sound that is required. It needs to be usually... Uh, warm and bright. It needs to be projected. It mm. needs to be beautiful. It needs to be matching. It needs mm. to be controlled over two octave range. There's a lot of goals that are built into classical singing. Most of those goals either exist less or in different balance or don't exist at all. The more contemporary you get, the less you use those particular goals mm. because the whole concept of why that music is there has changed. So I always think of, this is my personal take, I think mm-hmm. of classical music, classical singing, if you like, but music in general, as being architectural. So we're talking long phrases, we're talking shapes, mm-hmm. we're talking big emotions, particularly in singing, you are usually talking grand emotions. There are exceptions to that, but they tend to be the exceptions. Mm. Whereas in musical theatre, you're talking moment by moment story. Yeah, I mean, and characterization. Obviously, there is characterization in opera and yep. in when we're interpreting art, song, and leader. Yep. But I, I would say it's on a different level. It's much more informed by acting. And by the way, when you get into CCM, so when you're going into the, the more popular end of the, even the musical theatre canon, but into CCM in general, it is much more about vibe. So it's, it's even less about moment-to-moment interaction. It's more about feel and, and personal emotion and daytime stuff and... Everyday know, stuff. Everyday stuff, yeah. vernacular stuff, mm-hmm. conversational stuff. So I want now to pick up on something that came up from quite a lot of feedback uh, and conversations um, that we had with the last podcast. There is a concern about the developing voice, as, as in the child and early teens voice, being encouraged to take on adult timbres and behaviours. And I think this is something that has possibly led um, some teachers to steer away from musical theatre sounds. And I wondered if we might read some of this lovely feedback we had from, from Charlotte, Charlotte. Secatil. Okay. Do you want to read it? Yeah. Thank you for this, Charlotte. It was great. Okay, this is quite long, but there's so much good stuff in it. Fantastic podcast, as always. Just some thoughts that occurred to me while listening. I wondered if the exambled marking criteria are behind the styles we teach our children. 
They have very specific tonal outcomes and musical requirements in order to do well, and perhaps a bias towards certain exam boards and reputation, etc., can colour our idea of Western classical technique being perceived as the best mm-hmm. all-round technique. Mm-hmm. Personally, I try to encourage a range of sounds and voice exploration that children can choose to use to be expressive within their pieces, and we do talk about style. Mm-hmm. Young people are often only exposed to a limited type of genre and family expectation can play a part in how they want to sound. I think it can be great to encourage young singers to explore a wide variety of repertoire, if they're open to that, to discover the many possible sounds they can make. They do tend to cling to one particular sound at a young age and are often listening to singers who are very much older and trying to imitate that sound. Therefore, exposure to lots of different genres will open up a world of possibility to them, which they can then use to define their own sound later. Yay. Well done, Charlotte. I love I that. I think that is uh, so beautifully put, and I'm sure that lots and lots of teachers will resonate with that. Thank you for that. Yes. Um, and I just want to refer to the fact we can't say who or which exam board, but it so happens, I mean, we are in agreement about exam boards, I we have are. to say. They're often very influenced by classical music values, uh, even if they're offering musical theatre exams. Um, Two of our registered accredited trainers are currently advising exam boards as we speak and will keep you posted. I do want to tell a little story, um, which is I was a consultant on a repertoire. Actually, this was after the fact. They'd chosen the repertoire and they they came to me and said, what... How how can we market this to musical theatre people? Mm. And it was a musical theatre um, exam list. Mm. And I spent some time looking through the repertoire list, working out what was going on. And it was very interesting because, let's say in the first 60 pieces, there were five that were contemporary musical theatre and 55 that were classical musical theatre. And I said, well, there's your problem to start with, mm-hmm. is that you, you if you're looking to influence the the contemporary musical theatre teachers, the people who actually work in the business or mm-hmm. have the knowledge of this contemporary world, you're not, they're not going to go. They're mm-hmm. not going to go with it. Mm-hmm. What you are going to do is to encourage the classical teachers who want to um, expand a bit into a sort of musical theatre area. They're not quite sure about it because they don't have the experience of it, but it's like, oh, we can sing that repertoire mm-hmm. uh, and therefore I can put my, my children in for those exams and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm feeling safe and comfortable. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's absolutely fine if that's what you're aiming for. But if you're wanting to attract the contemporary musical theatre teachers, you have to have the repertoire that they're going to sing. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you told us that. Okay, should we have a listen to some speak pipe queries? Because yes. we've had some nice ones. Yes. Okay, this is Joanna. And we're moving on to some specifics, aren't we? We are. I think. This is Joanna. And in fact, I'm going to play two, uh, one after the other, because they're similar questions. Mm. Hi, Julianne and Jeremy. Joanna here. Um, thank you very much for a great podcast with the many miles that I do for my job. I've always got you both talking to me in the car and I'm learning as I drive. It's fantastic. Thank you very much. So great topic, musical theatre versus classical. So my question is, if you have a 16-year-old that comes to you and says, I want to be a portfolio musician, I want to sing full time, then obviously we would tell them they have to be flexible and they have to be able to sing in a variety of genres and so would you teach them classical 
technique first or musical theatre technique first? Or would you try to teach them both hand in hand so they understand the difference from the get go? There's my question. Uh, Really looking forward to listening to the answer. And thank you, as always, for a great podcast. Thank you. Bye. Can I say a few things about Joanna? Because she's one of our registered accredited trainers as well. She is. Um, She is, uh, amongst other things, currently working at uh, GSA, um, working as as a a performance coach with the musical theatre singers there. And she also runs her own school. And she trained as a classical pianist at a conservatoire. Her training is very close to mine. She trained Mm -hmm. as a classical pianist and then went into opera repetiturring, so it's very close to mine. Yeah, but she's always sung with a band. And so she comes in from two different angles, which I think is really interesting. Mm. And if you want to check her out, you could listen to her talk about her journey on the YouTube channel. It's the accreditation playlist. Uh, we'll, yeah. Again, we'll put the link into that in the yeah. show notes. And you can meet her there. So, oh, crikey, now I've forgotten the question, which is <laughs> introduce them early on to different different genres. Let, I... Let's hold, hold that thought for a moment because I want to play Franca as well because okay. it's a similar question. Okay, all right. Holding the thought. <laughs> Hello, Jeremy and Gillian. My question is, if you have a young MT singer do you always sort of decide whether to go more the legit route or the more belty route? Or do you sort of teach them both, like cross teach them so that eventually they can do both? Or do you wait with belting before they are a certain age before deciding? Well, it's a bit of a messy question, but anyway, I hope it makes sense. Bye. Now, that's not messy at all. And Franca, thank you for that. Frank is another one of our registered accredited teachers. She always asks great questions. Yeah, and her background is as a classical singer. And um, as a result of the training she'd done with us, she's now working with different genres as well. And it's very interesting to hear how people are able to make that shift. Quite a few people on the course did that, didn't they? So we're getting, Mm. it's two slightly different versions of a similar question. Um, Joanna is asking classical versus musical theatre. Franca is asking the classic end of musical theatre, which is known as legit, and contemporary musical theatre. So they're similar, but very slightly different. And the, but in the main, the question is, which technique would you teach first or do you teach them both? So I think then my answer would be exposure to different music genres and uh, music styles as early as possible. And also, you know, letting them make some choices, you know, asking them. I know, Joanna, you'll already be doing this, asking them what they listen to. And if you find that it's quite a narrow sort of um, set of um, styles and timbres, maybe invite them to listen to some others so that you can then explore those. Um, I think that's my answer. I want to dig into this whole question and and one of the things that's behind it, you know, I think that there's a fear, not particularly from Joanna, Mm. but I think that it represents a fear, Mm. which is we must get our technique sorted out in one area first before we even attempt to mess it up to go into a different area. And I think that's where the classical teachers are coming from, going, well, you need a solid classical technique first Mm. before you do anything to mess it up. Yeah, and I was certainly taught that. Now, if you want the answer to that, just go and listen to the end of um, the last 
podcast that we did, which is episode one, because you have a wonderful definitive answer to that. I don't think we need to go there again. Well, no, no. The, the reason that I want to go there is because I want to say that I think that fear exists. I don't think it's real. Mm. The key bit of information is, and I keep coming back to this, which is context and level. If you are talking about, I want this person to have a career at the very top of international opera, Mm. then it might not be a good idea for them to also have a a professional performing career in contemporary musical theatre. Not the least because it muddles the, uh, the bookers and the audiences. It's actually more that, yes which is the audience can't quite decide where you fit. Mm. Um, In terms of can a voice make different sounds one after another, the answer is yes, absolutely. Mm. Once you accept that, and some people don't, which is like, I need my strong technique and I need it to to make this sound and I I need to refine this sound before I do anything else. Once you realise that a voice can switch on an instant from one genre to another and one style to another then the whole business of should I be teaching just this or just that becomes a moot point. It, it's like we don't even need to ask the question. The question to ask is, what do you want to sing next? Mm. Um, now, I want to bring Aniko in because she asked a lovely question. Aniko Tote of Cocoa yeah, Vocals. Yeah. She asked a lovely question which actually introduces this beautifully. What are your favourite ways of switching between, say, legit MT and contemporary MT techniques mm. in a solo musical theatre variety concert? Oh, Right, and she's that's probably exactly, speaking from experience. It's exactly what I'm mm. talking about. And in fact, we have somebody else, Jessa, who's also sent something in. Mm. Jessa puts whole one-woman shows together where she moves between genres yeah. all the time. Mm. And it's a brilliant question from Aniko because it's like, what do I do when I'm singing something that is very specifically in this style and this sound palette, mm. and then I want to sing something that is entirely different? Can I do it safely? And how do I get myself into it? And she says... I use a swallow to switch my larynx back from twangy high contemporary into a more tilted legit setup. Mm. But do you have any others? And what happens if you're doing it the other way around from legit to contemporary? Mm. Great mm. question. Love it. I think my answer to that, and I have had to do this with, with people, for instance, if they felt they've been singing with a much higher larynx, um, is to do the yawn sigh if you have a moment, you know, just doing the... just to allow things to lower a little bit, that can help you to reset. I think the other thing that, uh, and obviously you can do it the other way around, just moving um, into a higher laryngeal set, which you might do actually by swallowing. Mm -hmm. Hello, my name is Gillianne. Okay, now this is really interesting because you have used the swallow in the opposite way to the one Annika has said. Yes. And I love that because the swallow can be used in either way. Absolutely. The way that she's using it, she's using the swallow to switch the larynx back from twangy high to more tilted legit, which is going to give her more space. Mm. What she's doing is doing the swallow and allowing it to complete so that the larynx goes back down to its neutral. And then she can do that from, she can make some more space if she wants to from that neutral. What Gillianne's doing is doing the swallow, but actually stopping it very slightly higher than neutral, which is going to take it mm. into that slightly shallower, brighter space. So it's different stages of the swallow, so that we yes. get we get the we get the rise, yes, and then we get the drop. 
Yes. Okay. Well, I hope that's useful to some people. Um, the other thing that I did in my demonstration was that I spoke. Yes. And this is something that we do a lot, using a little bit of emotional speech so that um, if I'm needing to move now, let's say, back into um, more of a, a legit lyrical style, I might, I might do the yawn sigh and uh, stop at the end. Oh, oh dear. I'm feeling very sad today. I might even bring my lips forward to get a little bit of chiaroscuro. And that's going to take me into a more lyrical sound. That's very nice and very clear. Mm. Thank you. Awesome. Um, and and we I... use that a lot in our teaching, we do. don't we? Oh, yeah. the setting, setting something mm. up in your speaking voice. What's so interesting about something like a musical theatre variety concert is you will often have the opportunity to speak to the audience between songs. Mm. So you can use your speaking voice setup and you can actually change your speaking voice setup while you're talking to the audience. So that's a really interesting point. You could even speak to them in the character that you are about to sing in, which is a very nice way of doing mm -hmm. it. The other thing is there's always applause. Um, so you can actually reset during the applause. One of the things that I will use to mm. get... Um, and actually, interestingly, I will use it either way, is uh, creak. Creak or vocal fold fry. Absolutely, yeah. Because the creak or vocal fold fry will reset you to neutral. What is so fascinating mm. about both of these exercises is that they get you to reset to neutral, from which you can then go either brighter, shallower, or warmer, deeper. Mm. Um, for me, and I learned this 20-something years ago, you know, I was doing all sorts of vocal manoeuvres and gymnastics, and I suddenly thought, but isn't the most important thing understanding what your own personal yeah. neutral is? Mm. Because you can move from it in all directions. I'm just thinking that where we were then before we discuss... Franka's question. So we haven't even got I to Franka's question yet. We we <laughs> are meandering like crazy, which is that um, just because you you brought up um, Aniko's question, mm. uh, Joy's question. Oh, all right, is, okay. We're still not going to answer Franka's okay, question. No, you'll have to wait, Franka. When I'm teaching legit songs, especially those with long notes and phrases, such as "So in Love" from "Kiss Me, Kate." How do I keep those phrases going without sounding like Puccini? I love that question. I just demonstrated that. And for those who maybe aren't familiar with the differences between, let's say, the MT quotes legit sound and uh, classical, that demo I just gave you would not pass as classical singing. Okay, let's break it down. When I was singing in this tone of voice... I was still in a mechanism one. Yes. And that would work very well for so torn to me and hurt me. Yep. Now, I did something else here, which is because Joy said, how do I keep those phrases going without sounding like Puccini? Yes. I didn't. No, you cut them off. Okay. <laughs> Particularly, and I'm because I know this song very well, you know, taunt me, hurt me. I know it's written as a two beat note. You do not have to sing those two beats on the vowel. Okay, let's break this okay, down. Okay, do you want to do that? Let's break yeah. this down even further. Mm. The first thing is, okay, in classical, in the classical training world, 
The goal is to get yourself as close as possible to the composer's intentions, whatever mm. they were, they mm. are or were. And the only thing that you really have, in, unless you've got recordings by the composer, um, the only thing that you have is is the music, the written notation. Mm. And so um, the goal in classical singing in general is that you sing as close as possible to exactly what's on the page. And what that means is you sing the note to its fullest extent, and particularly because classical singing is all about tone production and matching tone, you do full tone, full vibrato right to the end of that note, however long that note is. So what you're doing, and within that you can have little gradings of volume, you can do what I think of as the bloom, the swell, mm-hmm. um, and then the die towards the end of the phrase, or you can just swell and maintain. Mm. What's interesting is that the the goal, if you like, is matching beauty of tone. Mm. The moment that you take that into musical theatre, even in legit classic or classic musical theatre, is that the goal is no longer matching tone and bloom. It's in there somewhere, but it's not the main feature. Mm. The main feature is to tell the story moment by moment. Now, if you can find a dramatic reason why you would bloom on a sound and why you would make it beautiful, then by all means go for it. Yeah. What is so fascinating is that you can tell a classical singer singing musical theatre by the way they deal with the long notes and what they tend to do is hold the tone on all the way through hold the vowel on all the way through and then usually do a little crescendo the vibrato stays the whole time so everything is about shaping and matching right to the end of the phrase and and you know what i gave you was just one version um i i think if i were to express the way to handle it verbally I would say um, allow yourself to move into mechanism one. I'm talking about female identifying voices here, not male. Um, Allow yourself to move into mechanism one, but don't make it too heavy. Make a little bit of shaping to go for the lyricism so that um, you don't end up sounding like Puccini. Uh, I think, you know, sort of almost going into a speaking voice, which is what I demoed with. It's a, very, that's a very, response. it's a very rounded speaking voice that, that, yes. you, the set that you went into. I think, I mean, I want to sort of break it down for, mm. for Joy as to what to do. Because okay. we've told her what not to do. But here's what you do. The first thing is don't bloom on the sound. Don't increase or try and get more resonance or a bigger round, rounder vowel shape or anything like that. Just hold it straight. Don't shape the vowel. Thank you. That's beautiful. Do not shape the vowel. The vowel mm. is already there. Mm. The second thing is experiment with holding the volume exactly the same and then holding the volume and dying on it. Mm. Um, The the third thing is feel that you can cut the note off early and don't do all the same length of phrases. So do one phrase longer, one phrase shorter. Mm. The key bit for me, and it's the biggest difference between um, classical and musical theatre legit, is the whole business of the vowel shaping and the and the, the the crescendo and diminuendo, the actual dynamic shaping of it, is different. Hold it straighter. Did we not deconstruct three different performances of this song in one of our webinars? We did. Um, I'm going to have to, because we have 18 webinars. Can we remember which one it was? No, um, because we deconstruct a lot of songs in different yeah. webinars. Mm. We will look this up because we actually did this. We had three 
different styles of performer sing this song yeah, and we broke it down one was jazz one was musical theatre and one was, was class- more classical yeah. well she was she was um she was a professional wagner soprano yeah, yeah. um Okay, well, I f- can we play Franca again? Because Franca. I've forgotten. Sorry, Franca, but you get aired twice, Franca, and that's a good thing. Franca van Essen in the Netherlands. Yes. Hello, Jeremy Gillian. My question is, if you have a young MT singer, do you always sort of decide whether to go more the legend route or the more belty route? Or do you sort of teach them both, like cross teach them so that eventually they can do both? Or do you wait with belting before they are a certain age before deciding? Well, it's a bit of a messy question, but anyway, I hope it makes sense. Bye. But teaching is messy, Franca, isn't it? Wouldn't it be lovely if we had one-stop answers? So thank you for asking this question. Do you want to say something, Jeremy? Yes, I Mm. do. Um, The first thing I want to ask is what age and how much experience? Mm. Because if somebody comes to you age seven and says, um, I want to sing musical theatre, and you go just present them with all the sounds that they could possibly make, if you coming, if they're coming to you maybe at twelve and they're inexperienced, then I would probably go the slightly more legit route, and I probably wouldn't do well. I, w- I wouldn't do belting if they hadn't had any experience of it at that age, but I would do power sounds. Um, and again, it depends what stage of change that voice is in. If they're coming to you at sixteen. Uh, the girls probably, again, it's about level of experience. If mm. they've never made those sounds before, mm. you introduce them to a whole range of different sounds. If they're already relatively experienced belters, then you carry on with that. I'm all for giving them a range of different sounds to play with. And there are only a few provisos about the belting, which is it depends which stage of change they're in. Now, I think this is... Uh, useful to consider in terms of what's sometimes called vocal cross-training. And I'm going to talk about a client um, that I had many years ago. I had quite a few clients, actually, who were child stars. Um, And this particular client um, had, I don't know, I think probably done Annie. You know, they've usually done Annie, people from my generation. And she was a natural belter and a very good belter. And um, by the time... She was training later at university. Uh, Bless the singing teacher she was working with there because that singing teacher said, I'm more classical. I don't think I'm right for you. Go and seek this person. I think what happened was because they'd grown up only making one kind of sound and obviously they got cast for that and it's happened they were very good on stage as well, that... um, it's kind of like you get used to one type of usage mm-hmm. and it was quite difficult to begin with to get a different way of using their voice. Mm. And it's something that we discussed uh, so that she had more versatility. Actually, one of the ways that we went in was that she had grown up listening to folk music, traditional folk music, and we went in from there. And then from that, we were able to do the more lyrical our musical theatre as needed. So I think we do need to be aware that when we're working with growing voices, the advantages are if we expose them bit by bit to different ways of using their voice, I would guess they develop more flexibility. And this is partly to do with 
level, which we spoke about last time, what we've got to remember is this client I'm talking about was, as a child, an elite performer. Mm -hmm. And as it happens, sometimes moving from elite performance as a child to doing a different genre, um, moving further up uh, in age in your career can be problematic. It seems to me that, that there's a theme going on. It's just a theme that is appearing from this. And it's, it's in a way, it's about um, flexibility. I think if you are a musical theatre-based teacher, flexibility is built into your mentality. It has to be, because your student has to be able to sing multiple different roles, multiple different shows, multiple different genres. Musical theatre probably contains more genres as a, as a whole than any other type of this thing. When you're dealing with classical, what you're dealing with is less about flexibility of sound and more about finding the sound that is you. And you then take that sound around the, the roles or the leader or the opera or whatever, whatever it is that you're doing. And so the, the, it's like you're, the key is to find what works for you and stick to it. And I think genuinely this is the difference between the two. And it's why the classical technical ideal is to find something and be able to do it. Now, what we have to find out when we um, edit the recording is whether my hiccups sound on the recording or not. And if anybody has a cure for hiccups, please let me know. Is that I an- think... Is that another podcast? No. I, well, it could well be. Um, I bet Tor has something to say about that. I think we have done quite enough on this. Okay. If you agree with what we're saying, let us know. If you disagree strongly with what you're saying, let us know that as well. We really want to know. If you have further insights to offer, we would love to hear them. So you can either email us at info at vocalprocess.co.uk or you can go to speakpipe.com slash vocalprocess and record yourself an answer. So we will see you next time. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. This is A Voice, a podcast with Dr. Gillian Kays and Jeremy Fisher.